Welcome to the American Citizens Abroad podcast. I'm Michelle, and today I'm speaking with Dominique Paterano, PhD, better known as Dr. P of Crimson Coaching. Welcome, Dr. P. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much to the ACA, Mary Louise Serrano, and to you, Michelle. I really am excited to be here. We're happy to have you. Dr. P, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you got started in the academic coaching business? Sure. Well, I was a kid who always loved school, believe it or not. I started tutoring other kids at 13 years old. I continued doing that as a part-time job throughout high school and while I was a college student at Harvard. After I graduated Harvard, I went to teach SAT for a major test prep chain part-time. And I realized when I actually got in front of a group of students, hey, I think I'd like to be a classroom teacher. So I enrolled in a master's of ed program and I got my first teaching job in 1997 and taught various places until full-time until 2014. In between, I got a PhD and also taught college, but believe it or not, throughout, I always worked one-on-one tutoring children because I just love the impact that I can make tutoring one-on-one and how I can also address the emotional needs of each child as well as their academic needs while tutoring. Can you tell us a little about your counseling and coaching services? Sure. So Crimson Coaching actually provides four different areas for children. The first is academic subjects. My PhD is in U.S. history, so I do all of the AP histories, but I also personally tutor English, analytical writing, math through algebra and geometry, French, Spanish, and Italian, and any of the sciences and sort of more advanced math topics, I get others to tutor for me. I also teach skills like note-taking, organization, time management, because as I began to tutor academic subjects, I realized that most of the time when a child is struggling in a subject, it's not necessarily that they can't understand it intellectually. It's that there's some underlying executive functioning skill deficit that they need help in. So skills are the second main area. The third is what you might expect, test prep, SAT, ACT, but also any of the AP or advanced placement exams, especially in history, the GRE for grad school, the SSAT and the ISEE, which children take to go to boarding schools in the United States. And then the final area is college counseling. And that can be just the essays, like the personal statement or the supplementals, but also helping parents and kids fill out the college list for a kid. Many companies offer test prep, tutoring, and even college counseling services. How does Crimson Coaching differ from others in this space? That's a great question. I think there's a couple of key differences. Personally, as I mentioned before, I do all of the coaching that I mentioned above. I can really help build a relationship with a child, say in seventh grade, tutoring him for pre-algebra, and then get to know that child better over the course of years and build a relationship with the family. And all of that really helps me to reach and teach the child more effectively. The other is that 
while it's not bad for tutoring chains to hire 22 year olds right out of college, after all, I got my classroom teaching career started this way. A 22 year old simply doesn't have the breadth of teaching and life experience that I do at quite a bit older than 22. So because I've been working with teens for as long as some of those tutors have been alive, I really understand what will motivate students as well as what behaviors normal teenage stuff and what isn't. For example, this insight has actually led me several times to reach out to parents to suggest that they might want to look into additional professional services for their child based on what I was seeing. One time, a dad thanked me for, he said, changing his family's life after I suggested that he get his son tested for ADHD. It turned out that the child did have ADHD and now is thriving in boarding school. Another time, a girl got treated for her depression, and another girl got treated for math phobia. All of these insights, I'm not a psychologist, but my experience has allowed me to say to parents, hey, you might want to get this checked out because I kind of know what the bounds of normal adolescent behavior is. At 22, I also don't think I would have had the courage really to talk to parents about these issues. When parents hire Crimson Coaching, in short, they really get much more than a tutor. They get a caring, wise ally in relationship with their child. The big question for many high school students is the SAT and ACT tests. How do your test prep services provide assistance with these? All our coaching is now online. So we do the lessons online and then I follow that up by targeted homework from actual exams, which many students and parents don't understand that there's very limited number of those exams published. So it's really important to use them very strategically. And so I've set out a strategy for using those. And then the help is really tailored for each child, whether they have four weeks or four months to take the test. And then finally, I'm seeing more and more in my practice, especially over the past five years, that many students have really deep set anxieties. And so I also happen to be a yoga teacher, a certified yoga teacher. From my own practice of meditation and yoga, I often use confidence building exercises like journaling, guided visualizations, similar to what athletes will do before a big game and calming breathing exercises with students so that they can really ratchet down their anxiety so that they can bring their whole brain with them into a test. Many colleges and universities have gone test optional this year in light of the cancellation of SATs and ACTs in the wake of the coronavirus. What do you see happening with this type of testing? This is actually a trend that started about 10 years ago when studies began to show very little correlation between SAT scores and college performance. For my own students that really struggle with the SAT, I often like to point out that my sister and I, our SAT scores, I think, differed by something like 400 points, but we wound up both becoming teachers both making about the same amount of money. The SAT score really bears very little significance to success in college and success after college. Colleges began 
to some of them, more progressive schools began to go test optional about a decade ago. And that trend was only accelerated by COVID-19 when starting in March 2020, the SATs really almost across the globe began to get canceled. Universities are actually joining this list daily and families can definitely check out a link to that list on my website, which is crimsoncoaching.com. Just go to the resources page. In terms of the future of the SAT and ACT, I really think that college admissions this fall may dictate their future because if college admissions officers realize that they can just as easily fill a freshman class without a quantitative data, provided by an ACT score. And that class, this will be the class of 2025, performs similarly to the classes before them, I think that their use will decline and eventually may go the way of the dodo. In your opinion, how can kids who have lived overseas all their lives best prepare if they want to attend a U.S. university Are there some general things they should do, like more extracurricular activities or more AP classes? Are there any types of courses they should take? That's a really important question. So I think that any child who goes to high school abroad and knows anything about high schools in the U.S., even if that is just through, say, popular culture like movies, they will realize that American high schools offer usually a broad array of extracurricular activities, everything from organized sports to debate club to model UN. And many times the offerings of extracurriculars at high schools abroad are much less robust. I would say that students who live abroad and who are planning on attending U.S. University should really go out of their way to try to A, either start up clubs at their school, and I've definitely worked with kids who have done that, and those clubs that they start, they shouldn't be only for the purpose of college admissions. It should be something you're really interested in. So one student I work with, for example, is very committed to a green planet and to environmental conservation, And she ran a secondhand clothes swap at her school to cut down on having to buy new clothes, for example. And that's a great authentic extracurricular that she could put on her application. If you can't, for whatever reason, found a club at your school, then I would definitely look outside your school for athletic clubs or other types of things that you can join in your town or city. That's the extracurricular piece. In terms of classes, AP classes, which the AP designation is advanced placement, APs are run by the same organization that writes the SAT, the college board. And they are intended to give American high school students and sometimes students abroad a year's worth of a college class in their high school class. And then they take an AP exam, usually in May. Those exams are graded on a scale from one to five. But not all schools have AP classes, even in the United States. 
if they're not offered, I suggest to any student abroad or here in the United States, take the IB program or simply the most challenging classes that your high school offers. Colleges will know if you're trying to challenge yourself or not. The one class that I have noticed some of my students who live abroad missing is U.S. history. I know that I'm really biased because I have a PhD in U.S. history. However, I really do think that a U.S. history class, even if it's pretty perfunctory, will help kids in numerous ways. First, they're going to be more familiar with the country that they're actually planning to move to. And that will also help them when perhaps they are making choices for where they want to go to school. They may understand where those regional differences come from. Lastly, the SAT contains a reading comprehension passage that generally comes from 19th century history, sometimes English history, but often U.S. history. And I find 19th century English is tough to understand because it's written in a sentence structure and format that differs very widely from how we speak and write in the 21st century. Any child that has a background in U.S. history, I think, will do better on that passage that seems to stymie even students who grew up in this country. Finally, my last piece of advice is for both kids who grew up in the United States, as well as those who've never stepped foot inside it, I think students really need to read, read, read. A variety of quality nonfiction and fiction. By reading, you're not just going to learn new vocab, which after all, the vocabulary is no longer really tested to a great degree on the SAT, but you should ask yourself, what is the main idea of what I just read? Because identifying the central idea of a short nonfiction passage will appear all over the SAT, and it will also help you when you try to write an analytical essay. I really hate to sound like a crank, but I believe that because this generation has really grown up reading the, the unfiltered, unedited, quote unquote, Twitter news and elsewhere online, digesting longer pieces is very difficult for them. And they actually are unfamiliar with the proper grammatical structures that are tested on both the SAT and ACT. Unfortunately, all of these weaknesses show up in their own analytical writing. I really believe that they can, as early as eighth grade, 13 years old, have your child read newspapers that you read. I think that's invaluable. Mm -hmm. Some of our members have talked about sending their high school children back to the U.S. to either attend high school or to attend high school just for the last two years. What's your opinion on this strategy? I think it's great as long as the kids are emotionally ready for being so far away from their family at that age. Exposure to the U.S. prior to university will definitely help smooth out the acclimation process that all college freshmen go through, but that especially students who have lived abroad go through. 
many ACA members need resources for the college application process. How can your services help? Well, I can be as involved or as hands-off as the family needs. With regard to the essays, if your child just needs help polishing an already written personal statement, I'm happy to help with that. On the other hand, if she needs help getting going with everything from brainstorming to producing an essay to polishing the final draft, I can do that too. With regard to the actual application, which for most students will be the Common App, although not every college is on the Common Application, students can actually add me as an advisor that colleges don't see. So I can actually look inside the child's application to make sure that all the docs are in the right place and everything's filled out correctly. And then finally, with regard to compiling a list of colleges, I can certainly suggest universities that families should look at based on the child's interests and academic record. And I will say that for overseas families, you really can't start this process too early because unlike American families who live here, they can take sometimes just a road trip to go visit a college. Whereas each trip back home for the overseas family, either during the holidays or summer months, can and should be accompanied by college visits that really are meticulously documented by the child who might need to make a decision about whether that college should be on their list two or th even three years later. The university application process can be pretty stressful. How can both parents and their kids prepare for it? My first tip, and this is again really intended for anyone applying to college, not just students overseas, is to keep college in perspective. There are more than 4,000 universities in the United States and you or your child can have an amazing experiences at any one of them. A related tip is college is what you make of it. A recent study, Frank Bruni of the New York Times cited this a couple of years ago, the most successful college students do two things. They find mentors and they develop a strong peer network. If you do those two things, you can have a great time and be successful at Bronx Community College, where I teach as an adjunct professor of US history, and you can have a terrible time and be unsuccessful coming out of Harvard, where I received my undergraduate degree. By reaching out to peers and mentors, and those mentors don't just have to be professors, they could be, but they don't have to be. They could also be older students or TAs you really increase the likelihood that you will enjoy and succeed at college. And the last tip, like most things in life, you really mitigate a lot of stress if you start your planning early. If you get good grades from say the age of 13 or 14 on, if the parents start saving money from at least when the child is that old, if not when they are first born. If you visit campuses early, if you prep for SATs early, if you fill out the applications themselves early, all of those stresses are 
you know, you're not going to get rid of them, but you will certainly mitigate them if you do that when the child is 13 or 14 rather than when the child's 16 or 17. One aspect of the application process for U.S. kids from overseas is that they apply as a U.S. citizen and not as a foreign student. Does this policy make admissions more difficult? Like most things in life, this situation presents both pluses and minuses. I think certainly children of expatriates are disadvantaged when it comes to, for example, extracurricular opportunities that are less robust than at American high schools. They'll also often face, I think, more challenges when making a college list if they didn't go to this country because they're really unfamiliar often with the regional differences that there are throughout the country. On the other hand, because many colleges strive to develop a geographically diverse student body, the same children who were behind the eight ball by attending, for example, high schools abroad that don't have robust extracurricular opportunities will actually be advantaged because they did grow up abroad. This is relative to their peers who perhaps lived their whole lives in Westchester County or Fairfax or Orange County in California. What are your thoughts on the general perception of international school systems by universities? So just as it's hard to paint all American colleges with a single brush, I think it's also difficult to categorize all international schools in one way. My advice to children who go to international schools is really similar to kids who go from schools that are perhaps not very well known in the United States or maybe don't have the greatest academic reputation. And that is if students can demonstrate that they're both intellectually curious and that they've challenged themselves throughout high school by taking at least a few, I'm not saying all, but at least a few of their school's most difficult courses, whether that school is in Beijing, Brussels, or the Bronx, they will be fine during the admissions process. An area where parents feel ill-equipped is in helping their kids with the dreaded college essay. How important is the essay, and how do you recommend that students attack this essential part of the university admissions process? The verb attack for the essay is actually an interesting choice of words. So I think one way is to perhaps reframe what the whole essay is about. I think it's really a valuable opportunity for a student on the verge of adulthood to sit back and make meaning of their adolescence. The Common App is actually, I think their questions are wonderful. If the child needs a coach to help get to that making meaning part, it's one thing. That's ideally how, I, at least I try to present the college essay to my students. Three years ago, the Washington Post declared that the number one myth about college admissions is that the essays don't matter. I agree with this a thousand percent. While a great essay cannot undo or hide a terrible academic record, it can absolutely sway a borderline application in a student's favor. 
This year in particular, when tens if not hundreds of thousands and dare I say even worldwide, maybe even millions of students will apply to college without an SAT or ACT score, college admissions officers will be forced to examine the remaining elements of a student's application, their transcript, extracurriculars, and yes, the essays much more closely. So in short, this year, and depending on how long COVID continues to cancel testing dates, perhaps next year too, college essays will occupy a greater percentage of the overall application package than at any point in the past. But I'd like to just end with the point I started with, that this essay writing process hopefully doesn't have to be dreaded or attacked, it can hopefully be embraced as a way for a child to really reflect on the past four years and maybe look forward to the next four. I'm guessing that most of your coaching is done via distance. How effective has it been? Has it made it easier for students? I think it's been great for everybody involved. Definitely for me, I used to drive long distances to meet with many of my clients. That is gone. The parents sometimes would drive long distances to meet with me. Over the summer, for example, some teens like to sleep until noon and they can sleep until noon and log on with me at 12.05 if need be. Believe it or not, even before COVID, sometimes I'd be sitting next to a student with him on his laptop, open to a Google Doc with the college essay open, and me in front of my laptop with the same Google Doc open because it was just easier to do this and we could see real-time edits. It was much easier than working on paper. Google Docs makes real-time writing coaching a breeze. Then Zoom, Facebook Messenger video, WhatsApp video makes video conferencing and actually seeing the student, which I find really essential for coaching, very easy as well. Many families have turned to homeschooling, especially during this time of COVID. Some parents feel put off by homeschooling, thinking that they themselves need to be a PhD to homeschool. What's your opinion on all this? I think you definitely do not need to be a PhD to homeschool. I, for instance, would have learned nothing during my doctoral program that would have helped me homeschool. But I do think you need a lot of patience, energy, and organization. You need patience because kids don't always learn things quickly. Most likely, they are going to fight you about doing work that they don't want to do more than they would a teacher or a tutor because you're their mom or their dad. Homeschooling parents need energy because teaching is draining, especially when you're new at it and when you yourself are trying to get your own work done and teach multiple kids and multiple subjects. To be honest, I just don't know how working parents survived this spring. I really hope that they get more help from their school districts in the fall. And finally, every teacher needs to be organized, whether you're teaching just one child at home or 200 a day in a school. Planning lessons, grading finished work, and especially explaining new concepts to kids who are unfamiliar with them are all made a thousand percent easier when you're organized. How are you managing your coaching services during these coronavirus times? How have things changed? 
Well, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. I can tell you that business is up 650% since April 2020. April was my worst month since opening Crimson Coaching in 2014, and July was my best. Patience, energy, and organization are my best friends as well. How do you think universities are going to manage the fall semester this year? Some are going to have on-campus courses, and many are going online. What are the pros and cons to moving 100% online? Well, luckily, the City University of New York, where I teach American history part-time, is 100% online in the fall for history courses. I love to teach students in person, and most of my students do need that personal touch. I find that when they feel emotionally connected to a professor, they learn more and get better grades. I've long said that probably 80% of my students do work that they don't actually want to do because they have an attachment to me as a person rather than the subject matter. However, at this point, going almost 100% online was the only way that CUNY could keep us all safe. And personally, I'm happy that the chancellor made this call. I just hope that the students returning to campuses across the world this month are able to stay healthy and safe as well. What changes have you seen and what trends do you see in the university admissions process? In the past 30 years since I was admitted to college, one of the biggest changes I've seen is that universities are paying greater attention to the needs of first-generation low-income college students, and that's often abbreviated as FGLI, first-generation low-income. Back when I was an undergraduate at Harvard, those of us who were among the first people in our families to attend college or who came from blue-collar backgrounds often felt ashamed that we hadn't had the experiences of our wealthier classmates, and I think many of us tried to hide that fact. I'm really proud of this next generation of students for bringing the needs of FGLI students out of the closet and forcing university administrators to reckon with those needs, both during the admissions process and throughout college. Any final thoughts you can give to expat parents and students? To parents, I would say your child can have an amazing American college experience at almost any university. You will help your child most, I think, by de-emphasizing that the quote-unquote elite name brand college is the only one worth getting into. I think many students feel the need to either make their parents proud or live up to their parents' supposed expectations. And while many parents are great and don't even have those expectations for their kids. The kids don't actually know that by articulating that wherever the child goes is quote unquote good enough for you and will make you happy. You will really help your child to be their best self during the admissions process. For students, my advice varies based on the kind of student you are or have been. So if you are a procrastinator and you know who you are, I would say start early. I have gotten calls on October 27th from a mom who needed her son to write 
13 different college supplemental essays before the November 1st deadline. And we got them written, but it was very stressful for the child and for me to try to get him to get those essays done. And I dare say he probably would have been happier throughout the process if he had perhaps started three weeks earlier. On the other hand, if you're a perfectionist and you know who you are too, try learning to start getting your anxiety under control now. Because unfortunately, the SAT, ACT is a stressful proposition. Applying to college is a stressful proposition. So if you can learn ways to ratchet down your anxiety, it really will serve you during the admissions process as well as at college itself and during life. That would be my advice to those perfectionists out there. To both parents and students, I would say if you think that I can help you at any way throughout this process, please don't hesitate to contact me at info at crimsoncoaching.com. I really look forward to getting to know more international and expatriate families. Thank you, Dr. P, for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. The American Citizens Abroad podcast is a monthly podcast that is published the second Tuesday of each month. It is edited and produced by me, Michelle, and is a product of American Citizens Abroad. You can find us on Twitter at ACA underscore podcast, on Facebook at American Citizens Abroad podcast, or you can email us at podcast at americansabroad.org. Remember, give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other Americans living abroad can find us. 